1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Robert Weinberg. He goes by Bob. Uh, he's a member of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. He's a professor of biology at MIT. He's also part of the MIT Ludwig Center for Molecular Oncology. And we're going to talk about cancer and uh, how it spreads. So, Bob, thanks for coming.
2: It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you, Richard.
1: Yeah. So what the spread of cancer is called what? Metastatic spread? Or what's the name it, for it?
2: it? It's called metastasis. Yes, the spread of cancer okay. is metastasis, or you could say metastatic dissemination. Hmm, the okay. Of, the background of this is that we've spent much of the last three decades trying to understand how primary tumors have formed, in fact, actually, even four decades. And so by the millennium, uh, we came to really understand how primary tumors are formed. They're created by uh, damage to the genomes of normal cells and damage to critical growth controlling genes. Uh, these genes are sometimes called oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. And after a cell has sustained uh, mutations in three, four, five of these critical growth controlling genes, such a cell can begin to proliferate and can and create a localized tumor, a benign tumor in the sense that it's not yet invading into adjacent tissue. Uh, what can happen then with many kinds of human tumors is that they progress to a higher stage, they become invasive, and ultimately, uh, some of their progeny may actually disseminate via lymphatic and blood vessels to distant tissues throughout the body. And once they're there, those disseminated cells may attempt to seed a new tumor colony. Fortunately, they do so with very low efficiency, and so the formation of metastasis is itself a poorly understood process, if only because only a minute proportion of the cells that leave a primary tumor ever succeed in spawning a metastatic colony in the tissue.
1: What what do you think is the reason that uh, tumors metastasize? How do you think the process starts?
2: Well, we believe that in the context of primary tumors, there are strong Darwinian forces at play which favor the outgrowth in a certain tissue of cancer cells that have acquired a proliferative advantage through the mutation of a gene of one sort or another, and that ultimately... uh, these uh, represent the explanation for why cancer cells forming a primary tumor accumulate these mutations. However, there is the, that raises the question of whether there is Darwinian really advantage for an individual cancer cell to disseminate from the primary tumor to distant sites in the body. And there it's, it's unclear. Uh, it might just be an accident of primary tumor formation, an unintended byproduct. It certainly happens. But in terms of the cancer cell thinking about what it will become, uh, there's no evidence to think that there's a purposive agenda that primary cancer cells follow in order to acquire invasiveness and uh, dissemination ability. Uh, What happens in in the context of of a primary tumor is that the surrounding normal tissue becomes more and more inflamed, more and more reactive. And this in turn encourages the cancer cells in response to becoming invasive and metastatic. So it's actually uh, in response to contextual signals that the cancer cells experience within a primary tumor that triggers some of them to acquire these highly malignant traits.
1: If um, tumors are heterogeneous and then the resulting metastases are even more heterogeneous or just differently heterogeneous, do you think it's one particular mutation that causes this or is this... Is there other cell-to-cell signaling that causes certain cells to uh, to migrate?
2: Well, uh, the fact of the matter is, it's my belief and that of others, that when cancer cells invade and disseminate, in order to do so, they do not need to sustain additional mutations. Instead, what triggers these highly aggressive processes um, derives from um, wound healing programs that are intrinsic to all cells and that become active as part of um, the uh, progression of the cancer cell. A a, uh, researcher in 1986, here in Boston's uh, Beth Israel Hospital, once coined the phrase, tumors are wounds that do not heal. And indeed this seems to be the case, that is highly aggressive primary tumors very much resemble wounded uh, tissues. Of course, in the case of wounds, the the wound is healed and um, the tissue is restored to its structural integrity. In the case of cancers, the wound is never healed. And so this reactive inflammatory state that operates transiently during wound healing stays on at full blast for extended periods of time. And it's that component of the wound healing process, which seems to dispatch cells into adjacent uh, neighboring tissue and ultimately Via the blood and the lymph to distant tissues in the body.
1: When when a cell breaks off from the tumor and metastasizes, does it undergo an epithelial to mesenchymal transition, or does it just break off in it's in its current form and migrate and you know lodge in a certain spot? Like how does the uh, you know, how does this happen?
2: So now we're focusing our discussion firstly on the tumors that form 80% of the tumor burden in the U.S. population, which is to say carcinomas. Carcinomas, we know, derive from various epithelial tissues, that is, tissues that have epithelial cells within them that can undergo the transformation from normal to malignancy. And these epithelial tissues include the breast, the prostate, the lung, the bladder, the pancreas, the prostate, and so forth and these cells in and the cells in these uh, epithelial tissues that ultimately become malignant these cells start out in what we say is an epithelial state that is to say they look like cells that are normally designed to cover surfaces lining the ducts of various secretory organs our skin is also an epithelium protecting the tissue underneath from the outside world In the context of the lungs, there's also epithelial cells that serve as the interface between the air sacs and the internal tissue of the lungs where the blood vessels are. And these initially epithelial cells, in response to this wound healing inflammatory program, ultimately can activate the the wound healing program and move from an epithelial state where they're designed to cover surfaces, to a state which is called more mesenchymal or mesenchymal depending on your pronunciation and such cells when they become more mesenchymal they actually uh, take on the attributes of more connective tissue cells and this this connective tissue state allows the cancer cells that were previously epithelial having passed through the epithelial mesenchymal transition or as it's often called the EMT it confers on these cells Many of the traits we associate with high-grade malignancy, which is to say motility, the cells can move around, invasiveness, they can invade through the tumor or into adjacent tissues, the ability to disseminate after having gone into vessels.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
2: And being carried away to distant sites, such as blood vessels. So many of the attributes that we have known for, for many, many decades to be associated with highly malignant carcinoma cells are indeed conferred by turning on this otherwise silent biological program, the wound healing program, and the resulting EMT. And that can create these more mesenchymal cancer cells, which are quite aggressive, and can then move to distant sites in the body.
1: Has this been observed uh, in vivo, or is it only... uh, I'm sorry, has has this been observed in vitro, or only in the um, the body? Can it be observed maybe through fluoroscopy, live, in real time?
2: Many of the traits that we associate with the EMT indeed can readily be observed in the petri dish, that is to say in vitro, that is a change in shape on the part of these cells, their ability to invade into a adjacent matrix, their, their acquisition actually of increased resistance to therapy, but one can find correlates of this in the behavior of a malignant cells in vivo, i.e. within a living tumor. So this is neither an observation based entirely on in vitro work in petri dishes or in vivo in, let's say, a patients or tumor-bearing mice.
1: So why do, why do cancers seem to have a tropism for certain metastatic sites?
2: We've known for more than a century that cancers originating in one primary tumor site will tend to form metastases in specific distant target sites in the body. The prevailing wisdom for, for a long time was that these cells preferentially migrate to certain sites in the body. For example, we know that prostate cancer likes to form um, metastases in the bone marrow. Breast cancer likes to form metastases in the bone marrow and in the lung, um, not so much in the brain. And each primary tumor has its own preferred site of metastatic dissemination. The simple argument would be that these cancer cells actually have a a tropism, which means that they are really directed towards this or one organ or another. In other words, they tend to migrate to that organ preferentially. The alternative point of view, which I embrace, is that when cancer cells start disseminating from a primary tumor, they're scattered here, there, and everywhere throughout the body of a cancer patient, In the great majority of sites, they fail to succeed in launching or spawning a metastatic colony. But in contrast, in other tissue sites, they figure out a way of making a living with great facility, and it's there that they launch these metastases. When I say figure out how to make a living, we need to recognize the fact that a cancer cell leaving the breast, for example, a mammary cancer cell, when it lands in the liver, or when it lands in the lungs, it's landing in foreign territory, and therefore is, on the moment of arrival, poorly adapted to thrive and adapt into the newly found home, its newly found tissue microenvironment. And therefore, the vast majority of these recently arrived cells will die because they can't figure out how to adapt.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe
2: and review us on iTunes. To the new biological environment in which they happen to have landed on rare occasion, uh, the cancer cells will indeed figure out how to do this and having done so, they will begin to launch a program of what is termed colonization, that is to create metastatic colonies that ultimately may grow to the size of macroscopic growths so that can be readily observed in the clinic and be- can become life-threatening. Ninety percent of cancer, um, deaths are associated with metastases, not with the primary tumor. In certain kinds of tumors, it's 100% are associated with metastases, such as the case with breast cancer.
1: But why would, again, cancers have a predilection for a given tissue if it's supposedly random? Why, okay. why would they consistently go to the uh, you know a certain metastatic site? So
2: that's uh, that's a very good question, and I'll give you my speculation but it's hardly a proven fact. When a cancer, let's say a a breast cancer cell leaves the breast and migrates and lands in the liver or in the lungs or in the bone marrow or in the brain, in each of these distinct destination sites, in each of these distinct environments, it needs to make a number of adaptations. Uh, It needs to readjust its entire biology to accommodate Persisting in this or that particular tissue site. Such accommodation, such adaptation is clearly achieved with much greater facility given the pre existing differentiation program of the cell. What I mean by that is the following A mammary cell growing up in the breast is adapted and biologically uh, highly focused on creating mammary ducts in the breast. And those mammary ducts and the formation thereof represent its differentiation program. It's differentiated to thrive in the context of the breast. And accordingly, when it lands in these distant tissues, it has to make a number of adaptations. We don't really know how many, but we do imagine those adaptations are made without mutating genes. But we can say simplistically that the reason why a prostate cancer cell likes to form metastases in the bone marrow Is that the number of adaptations that it needs to make is much less, much far fewer than if that prostate cancer cell were to disseminate, were to spread to an alternative organ like the liver, um, where it might be really poorly adapted given its starting point in the um, prostate and its ending point in the context of the liver. That might be too much of an adaptation, too much of a stretch. And so, as a consequence, I would speculate it uh, it really rarely, if ever, succeeds in forming metastases in the liver. In other words, it depends on the match or the mismatch of the differentiation program of the starting cell of origin that leaves the primary tumor and the differentiation program of the host tissue in which it happens to have landed through metastatic dissemination. Uh, there may be slight differences in adaptation, or there may be profound differences, and it may be the profound differences that effectively preclude the successful colonization of a tissue by a recently arrived disseminated cancer cell.
1: Has anyone taken a look at a mouse model and given the mouse a certain kind of cancer that most often goes to a certain metastatic site and then let's say euthanize the mouse at the first sign of any metastatic action and try to look at what the niche construction looks like, you know, really early on in a, in a metastatic site or in a person, you know, that dies of a certain cancer, but they don't seem to have any metastatic uh, lesions. You know, has, that, has tissue been looked at histologically in the preferred metastatic site to see like what super early niche construction looks like?
2: Well, when you refer to niche production, you're alluding to the possibility, indeed the likelihood, that when cancer cells land in a foreign tissue they have to reconstruct a congenial environment around themselves. That is to say, they need to persuade the local cells, the resident cells, to switch around and become configured in a fashion that accommodates the newly arrived visitor. Um, And the resulting structure or functional structure, we could call a niche, as as you said. So the question is, uh, to restate what I said before, how easy is it for a cancer to create a niche to thrive in one tissue versus another how that happens and the nature of the niche is itself very challenging to study because a niche is a is a functional construct it's not necessarily something that is physically visualizable and thus uh, not necessarily something that can be understood in terms of looking under the microscope at the nature of the cells in the niche to be sure we know something about the biochemistry of the cells that form the niche. But what we know is likely to be only a tiny fraction of the complexity of the metastatic niche, that is to say, the niche that the disseminated cancer cell assembles around itself in order to gain a foothold in a distant tissue.
1: Well, have you looked at uh, extracellular vesicle signaling between primary tumors and metastases? And if so, what's been observed?
2: We have not. Uh, There are people, myself included, who are most skeptical about the the notion that extracellular vesicles are important in conditioning distant tissues so that they can uh, create what is called a pre-metastatic niche and will therefore be welcoming to disseminating cancer cells. Other people take great stock in uh, extracellular vesicles, uh, and to my mind, the issue is not yet settled.
1: Do you think there is any signaling between primary and metastatic sites and coordination of action for immune defense or any of that?
2: Well, that, that that's a very critical and interesting question. Uh, the answer is I don't know. It's not really been well studied. There are hints that that may be the case, but if it is the case, it, it represents a more uh, uh, systemic uh, phenomenon. By that I mean that we know in certain cancers the overall levels of neutrophils, one of the uh, immune cells in the blood is increased dramatically, and that dramatic increase can affect obviously how hospitable a distant tissue will be to recently arrived disseminating cancer cells. So it's possible that primary tumors can actually perturb distant tissues to make them more accepting of uh, newly arrived disseminated cancer cells. That is, it, it's possible that primary cancer cells may uh, evoke a pre-metastatic niche in a distant tissue, such as the lungs. But again, that's under continued study, and not everyone agrees to what exactly is going on.
1: What do you think of the conditions that create the drive towards metastasis? So, do you think it's just always there It's because of the loose associations of heterogeneous tumor tissue that cause it? Or like, how do you think it starts and why?
2: Well, Let's look at the, let's focus in on how a primary carcinoma develops. As it develops through multiple steps, we think there's at least five or six distinct stages or steps of tumor development. The carcinoma cell increasingly perturbs the surrounding tissue, perturbing it in a way that makes the surrounding tissue increasingly supportive of the agenda of malignant growth that the carcinoma cells have. And we know the nature of some of the signals that the carcinoma cells send out to recruit various kinds of normal host cells to enter into the tumor and create what is called the tumor-associated stroma. So it's the stroma that is a mixture of a variety of different kinds of cells that really uh, creates the environment that supports the primary tumor. But the other point to be made, more importantly, is the following having recruited all the stromal cells into the uh, tumor mass, and these stromal cells include fibroblasts and lymphocytes and neutrophils and macrophages and so forth, having recruited these cells into the stroma, not only do the recruited stromal cells begin to support the continued proliferation of the carcinoma cells, but they send signals back to the carcinoma cells that in turn perturb and shift the entire biology of the carcinoma cells that recruited them previously. And these shifts that we see between the carcinoma cells on the one side and the stromal cells on the other are very reminiscent, indeed almost congruent with changes one can observe in a wounded tissue that's undergoing wound healing. Included among these similarities, if not identities, are the transient expression of cell biological programs such as the aforementioned epithelial mesenchymal transition.
1: So what's what's next in your research? What are you trying to figure out now?
2: One of the things we're trying to figure out is how cancer cells control whether or not they uh, turn on their EMT program. And one other critical aspect of the EMT program, because we discovered more than a dozen years ago that when cancer cells uh, turn on the EMT program, Among the cellular products of this are cells that acquire tumor initiating capability. Such cells are often called cancer stem cells. And you might ask how we know about the presence of cancer stem cells. We know about them in effect by taking cells out of a tumor and injecting those cells having been extracted from one tumor into a a new mouse that previously had no tumor within it. And uh, as one learns from such experiments, the great majority of cells taken out of the original tumor are incapable of seeding, of triggering, of spawning a new tumor in the mouse into which they are injected. Only a small minority, when injected into the mouse host, actually is capable of generating a new tumor, of seeding a new tumor. And those rare minority cells are called tumor-initiating cells or cancer stem cells. And we know that in the case of a number of different kinds of carcinomas, when you turn on the EMT program, not only do you acquire other malignant traits, such as invasiveness and motility and disseminating ability, but you also acquire the ability to seed new tumor colonies. Um, And that's important because the ability to seed new tumor colonies can be observed not only experimentally, as I just mentioned, by injecting cancer cells into a mouse host, but they can also be shown to be critical for the formation of metastatic uh, tumor colonies. To put it another way, the cancer stem cells or the tumor initiating cells need to be present when a new tumor colony is formed in a distant tissue. And if they lack, if the cells that disseminate to a distant tissue lack this tumor initiating ability, they may land in the distant tissue, but they will never be able to do anything because they lack this prerequisite of being a a tumor colony initiated yeah, but, cell. But
1: if you have uh, the EMT transition, yeah, the epithelial mesenchymal transition, isn't that a de-differentiation back to a, like a somewhat of a pluripotent state, stem cell-ish no. state? Uh, uh,
2: yes and no. Um, even when cells activate the EMT program, they don't necessarily directly go into a a, a stem cell state. Um, a minority of the cells that activate the EMT program acquire st- uh, stemness. Uh, and those cells have a particular mixture of pre existing epithelial and acquired mesenchymal traits. And so they sit halfway in the spectrum between the E and the M states. Cells that are created by the uh, EMT program and become overly mesenchymal don't have this tumor initiating ability. And cells that remain highly epithelial also lack it. So it's a balance between the two. And it's not an, it's not as if there's a one-to-one relationship between the EMT program and efficient production of cancer stem cells.
1: So how does a tumor form from nothing then? How does it start if it's a supposedly mutation of a cell that's already differentiated? How could you end up with stem cell-like stems or stem cells, I'm sorry?
2: Well, now you're, now you're looking at the question of what creates the primary tumor to begin with, I believe. Yeah. And, here, and here what we know is that cancer arises from initiating mutations where a previously fully normal cell c- sustains one mutation or another, and that single mutation or, or one or the other in a growth controlling gene enables that single cell begin to proliferate and out-proliferate its neighbors so that after an extended period of time that initially mutated uh, cell containing a mutated gene will soon spawn hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of progeny. Um, they may look very much like their normal, fully normal neighbors, but they will have a growth advantage, a proliferative advantage. And in one of those descendant cells, yet another mutation will occur creating now a doubly mutated cell, which will grow even faster. And as these cells grow faster and faster, they begin to change their requirements for the surrounding stroma. They begin to recruit different flavors of cells from the host to support their proliferation. And as I argued before, after one has a highly mutated cell, the stroma becomes so reactive and so inflamed that it eventually provokes in the cancer cell the ability to uh, invade, disseminate, and become a cancer stem cell. That so yeah, eventually... you think
1: that enough mutations will lead to, what, a reversion back to a stem cell-like nature of a cell?
2: No, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Instead, I'm saying that multiple mutations will lead to an aggressively growing primary tumor cell. A byproduct of that aggressive growth will be the recruitment of normal host cells that are pro-inflammatory, that are reactive with the uh, growth of the cancer cell, and that in having, done, uh, having been so reactive will send signals that p- impinge back on the cancer cell that previously recruited them, and those signals would induce the cancer cell to acquire stemness and to acquire invasiveness and an ability to disseminate the distant sites and in principle, but not uh, in practice all the time, the ability to seed a new metastatic colony. In the beginning, the initial steps of cancer formation, as you just asked, uh, do not necessarily require uh, the formation of an entirely new colony. This, uh, the uh, singly mutated cancer cell simply proliferates in situ, in the place where it arose, and uh, with the goodness of time, it may acquire additional mutations that allow it to progressively perturb the tissue around it, converting the tissue around it into an environment which is increasingly hospitable to the further proliferation of the progeny of the initially mutated cell.
1: Has anyone observed a tumor start from nothing? You know has anyone observed this first cell mutating in healthy tissue? Uh, away it and anything like that uh,
2: In one sense, it's impossible. If you think about the, let's say in the case of a mouse, a mouse has about 10 to the 11 cells in it. We have about 10 to the 16th cells in us. And looking for the uh, mutation of a single cell is essentially uh, impossible for the reason that one doesn't have the resolution, uh, given the vastness, the vast complexity of an intact mammalian body. What one can do is intentionally and on a a preordained schedule, induce a mutation, inflict a mutation on a previously normal cell somewhere in the body. And there one can look at the effects of this initial mutation on the cells that have been uh, induced to acquire this mutant gene. And as I mentioned before, after the cells acquire a single mutation, they may have very subtle differences with their normal neighbors. They may have a subtly increased proliferative advantage that ultimately, after a period of months and years, accrues to the advantage of their progeny, because now they spawn the vast numbers of descendants that in turn can progress further to high-grade aggressiveness.
1: If all this is driven supposedly by advantage, then why would there be uh, different clonal lineages? Why would there be such heterogeneity
2: that's that's so different in
1: metastases versus as primaries as well?
2: That's also a very provocative question. The fact is if one studies evolutionary biology, one learns about the Darwinian process, which is called purifying selection, which is to say that if there's a diversity of of organisms or cells in a given population, the selective processes, the Darwinian selection, will weed out the less fit variants allowing the most fit variant to uh, predominate and eventually to rule the roost, to be, uh, to begin to dominate the entire uh, species or even tissue uh, environment. So, uh, and therefore pur- purifying selection is the essence of Darwinian selection and Darwinian evolution. The fact is, however, that after a while, when cancer cells evolved to progress to higher grades of malignancy, they may begin to spawn variant cells that have different sets of mutations, and they may do so at a rate that is so prodigious that it exceeds the ability of Darwinian evolution to select one variant over another. They just keep multiplying and rearing their ugly heads. And so with the passage of time in many tumors, the tumor cells diversify so rapidly that multiple distinct variant subpopulations of cells can coexist within a given tumor and can persist for extended periods of time because they're forming at rates far more rapidly than they can be eliminated by Darwinian selection.
1: Um, Have you worked at all with organoids taken from tumors and then cultured to, uh, you know, to create a new tumor versus the old one? And if so, have people looked at the heterogeneity and the mutations and the metabolomics and, and everything of the organoid tumor versus the one that was, uh, let's say, resected or biopsied?
2: Well, uh, that's not in my silo. My lab has not worked in uh, with organoids, and I haven't followed the literature with great precision. Organoids represents a mechanism or a technology of uh, propagating cells in the culture dish, not on the bottom of a Petri dish, but in three-dimensional matrix. Uh, And with the right mix of uh, growth-stimulating factors, the organoids can begin to recreate aspects of the tumor in vivo. Why that's important is that the traditional way of propagating cells and studying them in the cancer research laboratory has involved forcing the cells to attach to the bottom surface of a petri dish and seeing how they uh, they proliferate and how they behave thereafter. And that two-dimensional proliferation misrepresents the reality of what goes on in living tissue, which is, to state the obvious, a three-dimensional world. And so these organoids offer the possibility of propagating cells in three dimensions by putting them into some kind of gel. And when they do say they do so, they often exhibit many of the attributes that one associates with the cells in living tumors.
1: So how, how in your research are you trying to figure out how to stop metastases or interrupt the communication if there is any between primary metastases or like what's the the thrust of your research?
2: Well, one line of work that we have done and are doing is to see whether we can figure out ways of killing off the cancer stem cells, killing off the cells that have activated an EMT program and become dangerous. One way we found uh, some years ago, not so long ago, was we can treat in the Petri dish, Uh, cancer cell populations with cholera toxin which uh, as we found preferentially kills off the cells that have activated an EMT and that would seem like a a magic bullet for preferentially killing off the nasty cells within a tumor mass allowing the more benign ones that have not activated an EMT to persist and ultimately we imagine die off. The problem is as we uh, were told Cholera toxin is not good for you. It kills people, uh, as does the disease of cholera. And so even though this worked beautifully in the Petri dish, we would never venture to try this in a living organism because there it's clearly lethal, given its uh, lethal gastroenteritis that it causes in people who are infected with the appropriate bacterium that makes this toxin. More Is, is Is
1: there a treatment for cholera?
2: Yes, there is. It's antibiotic treatment.
1: Well, then why not deliberately try to locally inject someone with some cholera toxin, let it go to work on them for a little bit, and when they start to get systemically sick, treat with antibiotics. Maybe you can get rid of the the cancer that way, but still save the person.
2: Well, we have to keep in mind there's a distinction between the bacteria that makes the cholera toxin and the cholera toxin itself. The bacteria that... uh, produce the toxin can be treated with antibiotics. But the toxin substance, once it's released by those bacteria, no longer is affected by the antibiotics. It's just sent out into the world to do its job. And so um, treating um, the body with, <clears throat> with antibiotics wouldn't solve this problem, if only because mice that are treated with toxin are being treated with these molecules of toxin. And they're not being treated with living cholera toxin-producing bacteria.
1: Then why not use the bacteria, then, if they're the vehicle that can be killed later on? Or if you're just using cholera toxin, I mean, it's a finite amount. Couldn't it be tuned to be low enough to beat back the cancer a bit, but not kill the mouse or kill the person?
2: That's a, a question that's often called the therapeutic window. Can you use something at concentrations which kill off a cancer cell without doing concomitant damage to nearby normal cells. Obviously, the latter would be a disastrous situation because you can't have a, a, a therapeutic drug eliminate normal tissues in the body, which would create an unacceptable, indeed lethal uh, side effects. So uh, we, we don't think at present that we can use cholera toxin for this. And so we haven't pursued it any further. We're working in another way of preferentially killing off Um, The stem cells through a mechanism which has been called ferroptosis. And ferroptosis is a mechanism of induced cell death that one can trigger with certain kinds of uh, chemicals. And a question is whether we can induce ferroptosis in cancer cells in vivo using these chemicals without wreaking havoc on the normal tissues of a tumor bearing animal, for example. The answer to that one is not yet in. Well, chemotherapy
1: seems to purported to do that for, you know, 50, 70 years, but no one seems to be able to have uh, been able to control it. So why would other chemicals be controllable when chemo, which I would think would have been studied tremendously over such a long period of time, how come it couldn't happen with chemo and why would it happen with a novel compounded?
2: Well, chemo uh, kills all proliferating cells and, th- and therefore chemotherapy will will kill will be toxic to many of the cells, and as a consequence chemotherapy will be will wreak havoc on on the um, cells um in a tumor
1: so yeah you, so you were talking about these various selective compounds that uh you know would kill the cancer stem cells, but nothing else Yes. Um, what other things are the things you're looking at in your research and then I'm going to ask you know how do I get in touch how to uh, find out more about your work after that but what else is involved in your research right now?
2: We're also interested in whether cells that have activated their previously latent EMT program become more resistant to immunotherapy, because as you must know, immunotherapy has become a recently uh, developed, very effective means of treating a certain subset of tumors. And we have discovered that many kinds of tumors, we we imagine, resist elimination by these new immunotherapies simply because they have activated their own endogenous EMT program, which renders them resistant to elimination by these programs. And so um, this uh, is most interesting from a therapeutic point of view, because not only does the EMT program confer the aggressive traits that I described before, but unanticipated by us, it also renders cells less susceptible to being eliminated by some of these otherwise very effective immunotherapies. So we've been working on that as well.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Bob, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: Well, they could Google my laboratory at the Whitehead Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That would be, uh, I guess, the most straightforward way of doing so.
1: Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure. All right. Well, very good. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate all your knowledge.